Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today on Truth and Movies, here's Ewan. Mr. McGregor is Dr. Sleep in Mike Flanagan's Shining sequel. I don't know about magic. I always called it The Shining. Ken Loach delivers another slice of social realist drama in Sorry We Missed You. You don't drive for us, you perform services. And in Film Club, the Bates is back. Anthony Perkins returns for Psycho 2. Norman Bates is judged restored to sanity. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello there, movie truthers. It's Michael Leader here, sitting in the host chair this week, sitting across from Hannah Woodhead of Little White Lies. Hello. And Anton Patel. Oh, hello. So, Anton, this is another Stephen King film out this week. We've brought you back yeah, after Pet um, Cemetery and It Chapter 2 this year. It's strange. I've only actually ever read one Stephen King novel, but, um, but I <laughs> keep seeing it? his films. So. <laughs> well, it's a big film to talk about, Dr. Sleep. Should we just crack on with the reviews this week? No other business? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I can say that we've, we've put the new issue to bed, so hopefully next week, or maybe the week after, we can tell you all about it. Can you drop a clue? Is that in, within your jurisdiction like to do that? I get sacked. I mean, I don't want to spoil the surprise for anyone. It's a bit of a banger. There's lots of, a lot in this issue, not just in the kind of front section, but in the back section. It's kind of a uh, I a thought bonanza. they were all bangers, all of the cover. They are, um, yeah. I say it for every issue. But this is my 10th one as well. So oh. this is my, today, the 30th, is my two-year anniversary at Little White Lies, and this is my 10th issue, so... Oh, I think it feels yeah. I think it feels even more special than usual for me. So hopefully next week we'll be able to tell you what it is. Yes, and we're going to kick off this very special Hannah anniversary podcast <laughs> with Doctor Sleep. Doctor Sleep continues the story of Danny Torrance 40 years after his terrifying stay at the Overlook Hotel in The Shining. Still irrevocably scarred by the trauma he endured as a child at the Overlook, Dan Torrance has fought to find some semblance of peace, but that peace is shattered when he encounters Abra, a teenager with her own powerful extrasensory gift. When I was a kid, there was a place. A dark place. They closed it down and let it rot. But the things that lived there. They come back. Hi. You can hear me. You're magic. Like me. I don't know about magic. 
always called it The Shining. So, Anton, we've teed this up as bringing you back for another Stephen King film. But this isn't just a simple Stephen King film, is it? It's simultaneously an adaptation of Stephen King's own sequel to his Shining novel and a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's 1980 The Shining. Yeah, it's basically, it's like an impossible task for Mike Flanagan. It's very hard to believe he took it on because it's so hubristic. He's tackling what is the sequel to... Um, what, what many people regard as one of the, the greatest horror novels ever written in 1977, but also a sequel to the film that many people, myself included, regard as one of the greatest horror films ever made in 1980. And the, the novel and the film are irreconcilable because Stephen King famously has completely disowned the film, will tell anyone who will listen to him and has done for decades how much he despises Kubrick's film. Um, and the problem with a filmmaker approaching this material is they could try to adapt just the novel Doctor Sleep, which I might add is a sequel that was written only this decade. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a very belated sequel as a book. He could focus entirely on the material that's in the book, which um, inevitably cannot be the same as the filmic universe that was presented in 1980 and can't continue directly from it because the in the film of The Shining, Kubrick made all kinds of changes to the plotting that you know, leave characters dead who are still alive in Stephen King's universe. And the problem for anybody trying to approach this material is that if you decide to stick with Stephen King's words and not with the film, any um, film viewer inevitably is going to have the iconography of the 1980 film stuck in their head, and that is what they're going to expect. And I think Mike Flanagan has, in approaching this material, has made that attempt at reconciliation, part of the kind of structure of his plotting. The film is about different groups trying to meet or mismatching with one another in search of something that will allow them to continue. We have the main character, Dan, who's now in his 40s. Is um, When we first meet him, he's an alcoholic. He's using alcohol to suppress his shining powers because he's haunted by his past and just doesn't want those ghosts to keep returning to him. But he very quickly decides to change and engages in an AA program, goes clean and immediately starts getting a vestige of his powers back. And this is kind of quite important because actually when Stephen King wrote the novel The Shining, he was himself an alcoholic. He was an author and an alcoholic like the father figure, like the father in The Shining. And he's now writing this this sequel as someone who's a recovered alcoholic looking back on his past. And in a sense, that plot is contained within the film. Dan, although he's not a writer, it's only his father who is a writer, does end up writing. He writes on the wall because as soon as he regains his powers, this young woman, Abra, starts communicating him with him through messages on written on the wall of his apartment, even though, in fact, his room, I should say, it's not an apartment, even though she's hundreds of miles away on the other side of America because her powers are, in fact, quite a bit stronger than his. We also have him looking back to his own distant past. We know that at some point he's going to have to return to his past and address all these unresolved issues that he has. And there's another group, a group of people that had The Shining or something like The Shining, who have taken the decision to change into something else that requires eating the fears and pain of those who have The Shining. So they're a group of kind of vampiric ex-Shining members who go around looking for people with The Shining and absorbing them, and especially children who have The Shining. And so 
in a sense, um, what this means is that the film is kind of doing what all sequels do. It's retreading old ground. It even reconstructs the old Overlook Hotel. We go back to the Overlook Hotel. I don't think that's a spoiler because it's all over the trailers mm-hmm. and you really can't miss it. And we also have lots of ghosts that are familiar from the first film. But at the same time, it's moving off in its own direction. It's really, um, we think this is about Dan, and in a sense it is about Dan, but it's about Dan handing over the baton to someone in a younger generation. And the focus by the end is very much on her rather than on him. And we sense that she's a bit more like a character from X-Men or indeed from the film, from Paul McGuigan's push. In fact, her story really reminded me of Paul McGuigan's push, which is about people with kind of mutant powers. Each person has a different power and together they use them to form a kind of very elaborate contract that you could only do with these powers. And something like that happens in this. And there's even a character whose powers are referred to, the person who has these powers is referred to as a pusher. And that's Mm. clearly an allusion to push. Mm. Um, and I thought that, you know, for the most part, it's, given how hubristic the project was, it's pretty amiable and likeable as a horror film. It never quite went when I was where I was expecting it to go. And I think one of the things I most liked about it, although this, this might annoy a lot of other viewers, is that when it did revisit the past, in the scenes where you go back to the Overlook Hotel or where literally all the ghosts from the original film return in one form or another, so the bartender and the Grady twins, who now really are called twins, even though they weren't twins in the original film, (laughs) and um, the woman in the bath, whenever they come back, they're locked in a loop. They just repeat exactly the same lines and exactly the same behaviours that they did in 1980. And I like the idea that the film allows us to look at the past, but it also acknowledges that the past is now frozen and dead and nothing ever is going to change there. And that is the way that the film is able to move forward and do something else mm-hmm. um, by acknowledging that. And I think that's quite a, quite a, quite a clever play. Interesting. Already within your description of the, the plot there, we see that this is, thinking of the marketing of this, which leans heavily on the iconography of the Stanley Kubrick film, people who may go in expecting something as stripped back and as cold as just sort of raw in in the way it terrifies you as the original Shining film, might be a bit baffled by the amounts of law and extra plot that's there. And it's a cross-country film. It's like it's not claustrophobic. (laughs) The characters go all over the place in this film. And if you were feeling uncharitable, you could say this is almost like the Star Wars prequels where... Stephen King is interested in exploring the midichlorians of The Shining. So we're introduced to this steam that's a shining adept. And you also have Yoda-like, Yoda-like <laughs> guru masters who guide characters through their powers. It's really a very oh. different beast, The Shining. Hannah, what did you make of this? Were you, are you a fan of the original film? Oh, yeah, I'm a big uh-huh. fan of The Shining. Yeah. It's the first Kubrick film I watched, and it still has a very sort of... You know, big big place in my heart, and uh, I actually rewatched it after watching Doctor Sleep, which probably didn't benefit Doctor Sleep uh-huh, massively, uh-huh. because watching it again last night or the night before last, I was struck by you know it still holds up. It's still you know incredible film, whereas Doctor Sleep didn't really do a great deal for mm. me. I think also when you make a sequel that's half an hour longer than the original film, extended cuts excluded. That, to me, immediately is a warning sign that you've done something wrong if you think that you can make a longer film than Stanley Kubrick. Um, He's pretty good at making long films. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I was not impressed by it being two and a half hours. And I think that it could lose half an hour very easily, Mm -hmm. this film. It's very unwieldy, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there are so many kind of narrative threads going on. There's a whole sequence where we're kind of 
where Rebecca Ferguson's character is, has gone off to find this new recruit for their team. And it's just, there's just so many moments like that where you're like, well, do we, did we need to see this? Like, we could have taken, you know, 10 minutes off here and it would have felt tighter and probably a lot scarier to me. There's a lot of um, exposition that goes on where they have to, you know, really explain what's going on because there's so many details that I think in The Shining were just kind of left to your own imagination. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think is really interesting reading up on Stephen King's problems with The Shining is that he felt that the film uh, shied away from the supernatural elements of his story and that it was much more ambiguous as to what was the the root of um, Jack Torrance's uh, madness. Whereas I think the film is not that ambiguous, to be honest. I think it's... It is pretty clear that The Shining is is real, but this is you know Doctor Sleep makes no kind of bones about it. It's like nope, the supernatural is real, and this is how it's gonna play out. And for me, yeah, I just I felt like it was a very bloated, not very scary kind of predictable. Very much reminded me of the Halloween reboot that we got last year, uh-huh. in that it's taking all this iconography from this film you loved when you were younger and repackaging it for, I don't know, it feels like cynical marketing reasons, in my opinion. That's interesting. Um, And also, I think one of the biggest things I got from watching this was that the reason The Shining is so great is because the iconic images that we associate with it, like the elevators and the the Grady sisters and the woman in the bathtub, is that you see them for kind of glimpses at a time and it becomes more terrifying because you're like, oh, when are they going to pop up next? Whereas... In Doctor Sleep, they were there all the time. It was like, oh, there they go again. I just, it, it lost a lot of its impact for me because I was like waiting for the next kind of instance to come along. And, yeah. You know. This is almost like the conversation we had last week on this podcast about Terminator Dark Fate, where <laughs> it's a belated sequel which is trying to bring back an element of the iconography but tells a new story. The thing with Doctor Sleep that I find so fascinating and intriguing is that it is not in, even necessarily in the same genre as The Shining. It's not no, a no. psychological twisted horror. It may use a lot of the same iconography. It may use the same music cues at certain points. But it is more like, as you say, Anton, something like an X-Men origin story. It plays like a supernatural thriller with these special powers, the ragtag bunch of, let's just call them shining vampires, uh, led by Rebecca Ferguson, who looks like she's walked out of an 80s Aerosmith concert. They've all got really silly names as well, which is Steve, that's I know that's all, like all superhero King's names, thing, you know? Like, but she's called Rose the Hat, and there's Snake by Andy and Crow Daddy. <laughs> or Doctor Sleep, which is what da- yeah. Danny Torrance, uh, the, yeah. the, the, the moniker he adopts, because he uses his shining, because his, his limited shining capabilities are, are more a- empathic. He, he's able to to sense when somebody in the in the hospital is working is going to die and can help them bridge the gap between the living and the dead. And the idea that, you know, what he chooses to do is to help those mm. who are dying mm-hmm. to pass on is such a perfect metaphor for what this sequel is trying to do to The Shining. <laughs> and, um, it, it is interesting because you say cynical, Hannah, it's, it's almost like, um, and this is where we can talk about Mike Flanagan maybe, Anton, is, there's something here where I can see the wheels turning behind the screen mm. of trying to satisfy everybody in this this horrible equation of Stephen King, Kubrick, fans, horror fans, people who read King novels, people who watch King movies and what they expect from that. And Mike Flanagan is at the heart of it. And he's somebody who has come out of the independent mm. horror boom of the last 10 years. And this is his 
in terms of feature films, his big stepping out party. And Anton, could you say something about his work? And well, you yeah, mentioned I mean, hubristic in, in the, in well, the you know, earlier. Mean, in a way, hubristic, we should <laughs> say. But, but in a way, what, um, one of the things that he definitely doesn't try to do in Doctor Sleep is he doesn't try to look like Kubrick. Mm. I mean, he rebuilds the sets of the Overlook, but he doesn't shoot them in the same way that Kubrick did. And it's quite clear that he doesn't. He's chosen different actors to replace the characters from the first film who I think quite deliberately don't quite look like those characters. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that, you know, one might say uncharitably, he just couldn't find the right cast. But I think actually, I don't think that. I think the opposite. I think he's tried to go for people that don't look the same as those characters because he's trying to distance himself and not trying to be exactly the same as the original film, even though he's treading over similar territories. And, you know, it should be said that Mike Flanagan actually is an expert in this realm because what Mike Flanagan has done in film after film after film, if you look at his first film, Absentia, if you look at Oculus, if you look at Ouija, Origin of Evil, possibly one of the best sequels to a crap film ever made, (laughs) um, and TV's The Haunting of Hill House, what he specialises in is adults returning to their childhood trauma. And that is exactly what this film is addressing. Mm-hmm. And I think he kind of knows what he's doing. I mean, one of the, um, I mean, in a way, it, Chapter 2 earlier this year was dealing in similar themes, except that Mike Flanagan has... Uh, and I know you're going to disagree with this, Han- uh, Hannah, but I think Mike Flanagan has real characters. He has characters that mm-hmm. I, I found I could believe in and that I quite liked, um, and who weren't... I mean, this it would have been very easy to make this a simple story of good and evil, but um, actually... I don't know whether we're meant to think of Abra as a straightforwardly good character. Um, It's clear that she has capacity to do terrible things. She delivers the film's most sadistic lines. She's actually much more sadistic than the cultists who are pursuing her. And I think it's that kind of complexity of characterization which is quite typical of Mike Flanagan's work and which kept me um, diverted. And I must personally, unlike Hannah, uh, although I do agree, I think... Anything over 90 minutes is too long for a horror film, just <laughs> as a general principle. And I think The Shining, which is a perfect horror film to me, if it were by anyone else, I would regard as too long. It should not, <laughs> because it clearly is over 90 minutes, but it's one of the few that gets away with it. I don't think that I felt bored by this. It's not that I think it... I, I don't think it even approaches the level of The Shining. I think The Shining is a much better film, and I'm <laughs> not even going to enter a debate about that. But I did enjoy it, and I certainly wasn't bored by it, despite its length. Mm-hmm. And you were bored, Hannah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know when I wasn't bored was when uh, Kylie Curran was on screen who plays Abra. I think mm-hmm. she's amazing. She's really, really good. And I, I'm pretty sure that she was someone that they just found, you know. Mm-hmm. This, she's yeah, not I think like, it's her first film. Yeah, yeah, she's not a kind of pro. So that's pretty incredible to come just fresh out the gate. And it's a pretty hard role that she's playing, you know, especially picking up from The Shining as this poor kid who, you know, was born however many decades after that film. But maybe that's good in a way because she doesn't maybe doesn't feel the pressure that I assume a lot of people would feel with following up one of the greatest horror films of all time. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think Ewan McGregor, I'm not really a Ewan McGregor fan, but I think he he does do a pretty decent job in this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Rebecca Ferguson, I thought oh, did you not was like Rebecca really Ferguson? terrible. I oh, thought it was a good like use that. of her. Since that <laughs> breakout role in, in the Mission Impossible film, you know, the yeah. films, she, she's been no one knows plan, what to do with place, her. Hasn't she, yeah. cast. But in this one, I thought she used her physicality. There's one line that one of her victims says to her, which is, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen, which is, I think she does look like a 10-year-old girl's vision of the yeah, beautiful yeah, woman yeah, they've yeah. ever seen. And she has that almost spider-like, spindly, <laughs> fairy tale baddie look to yeah. her. I think maybe I would have found this a more 
terrifying proposition if it was just her, if she didn't have this kind of band of, you know, cronies working for her. Including the the, the giant from Twin Peaks, right? Yeah. Who turns up whenever you need a creepy tall guy. Yeah, bless him. Oh, he, he doesn't have much of a, a look in in this. And I, yeah, and I think it's fair to say it's not terrifying. If you're going into this looking no, for a scary movie, I don't think yeah. you're going to find that. Yeah. Apart from no. the one scene with, bless him, little Jacob Tremblay, who again, I'm not a huge fan of, which is a horrible thing to say about a small child, but he's in this in a minor role, and I do think the scene that he's in is very, not not terrifying, but disturbing. Mm -hmm. And I kind of maybe wanted more of that. I think I wanted the film to push the disturbing elements more. You know, I mean, I guess I think that's a problem unfortunately now with adaptations of Stephen King books. They're quite afraid to get into the really dark stuff that Stephen King isn't afraid to get Mm -hmm. into in his books. I think I just, if I'm going to have to watch a two and a half hour horror film, I want to be genuinely scared. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a fair point. I think even when we talked about it, chapter two, we talked about long horror films. That was, was that the same two and a half hours? Because I've not seen that yet. Very similar. Um, I, I, Doctor Sleep is a better two and a half hour movie. Than, <laughs> I than really didn't two. like it, Chapter Two. So. <laughs> well, we have a whole podcast about that, yeah. don't we? Anton? Oh, yeah. Anton, but what scores would you give Doctor Sleep? So, in anticipation, oh, boy. In enjoyment antici- in retrospect. In anticipation, I'd say it's kind of somewhere in the middle um, because I just love The Shining so much, and I think there's no conceivable way you can outdo it. I don't think it does try to outshine it. I think it just tries <laughs> to reconcile itself mm-hmm. to it. And for um, enjoyment, I'd say also three. I didn't love it, but I was surprised how much I didn't hate it. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect, I think because of the games that it plays with its status as a sequel, the way it keeps presenting you with metaphors for what it's trying to do to The Shining, I think I'd give it a four. I found that, found that interesting mm-hmm. to think about afterwards. Hannah? Probably a three in anticipation, just because, you know, I think it's an intriguing premise, even if one that should be regarded with, I think, a very healthy dose of scepticism. And then enjoyment, and in retrospect, probably a two for me. I just... Mm-hmm. You know, I think there have been better horror films in the last year. I think there have probably been better Stephen King films in the last year, which is... Nah, actually, no. you know what? No, no. Michael's just shaking his head at me. No, no, he's, he's completely right, yeah. I mean, it is the best out of a bad bunch this year in terms of we've had Pet Cemetery, which was very bad... And at chapter two, I suppose. So I, I, I think this this is best good. in class for 2019 King movies. And that one that's just come out on Netflix. Oh, there's a Netflix one, isn't yeah, there? The, yeah, the tall grass one. <laughs> it just sounds oh, like such I did a silly... see that. Is it well, any good? It's okay. Let's see. <laughs> it's not been a vintage year, really, for Stephen King adaptations. So many of them. And it's funny, this is the one that he doesn't have a cameo in because he's both in Pet Cemetery and, uh, yeah. and at chapter two. That's interesting, considering how involved he was in mm-hmm. this. <laughs> Maybe that's, yeah, I wonder mm. why. For me, it's, I think, threes down the line, mm. but I found this such an intriguing watch and such a surprising watch. I, I was never bored. And I'm a fan of Mike Flanagan's work. I think he's one of the best <laughs> filmmakers we have in the genre and seeing yep. him find his way through that almost impossible task and inject some of himself in there, including his own Easter eggs. We mentioned <laughs> Jake Tremblay. He, Mike Flanagan brings back some of his own stable of actors into this, like Bruce Greenwood, <laughs> who you know from Gerald's Game and his previous films. Oh, yeah. So there's a lot in there that's quite fun. And for anyone who's seen 
um, Gerald's game and remembers the one scene in that film oh, that's absolutely yeah. impossible to watch. It's so unpleasant. Well, that gets a little return in this. Exactly. That, that was a good bit in the film. That was like oh, genuinely that quite was horrific. so hard yeah. to watch. Yeah. Um, that's why I mean. I mean, I you know, I I don't I didn't like the haunting of Hill House, mm-hmm. which is weird because it sounds very much like my kind of thing. But I think I might give Mike Flanagan another chance for some of his earlier work. I think Anton would agree with me. Go and go and watch Ouija Origin. And he evil. seems like a very nice guy as well yeah. I have to yeah. say he did a little intro for our mm-hmm. film and he just you know I think you know as a critic you're always kind of supposed to like be a bit detached but when a filmmaker's nice it just does make me kind of look upon their work a little bit more favourably because I'm like you're a nice person you deserve to be making films and we're so. going to go from a film by a very nice person <laughs> to a film by an ornery old bloke called mm-hmm. Ken Loach let's see what you make of that Hannah as we talk about Sorry We Missed You Ken Loach follows the Cannes Prize-winning I, Daniel Blake, with this exploration of the contemporary world of work, the gig economy, and the challenges faced by one family trying to hold it all together. Here's a clip. I'd rather work on my own now and be my own boss. Have you ever been on the door? No. No, 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 I've got my pride out there. I'd rather start first. Music to my ears, Ricky. Henry was right. You are a trooper. Let's just get a few things straight at the start, though, shall we? You don't get hired here. You come on board. We like to call it onboarding. You don't work for us. You work with us. You don't drive for us. You perform services. There's no employment contracts. There's no performance targets. You meet delivery standards. There's no wages, but fees. Is that clear? Yeah. Clear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it sounds all right, yeah. Good, yeah. No clocking on, you become available. You sign up with us, you become an owner, driver, franchisee. Master of your own destiny, Ricky. You up for that? Yeah, I've been waiting for an opportunity like this for ages. A clip from Sorry We Missed You There. Hannah, we should just say up top that every time a new Ken Loach film comes out, the same divisive arguments happen all the time. Of course, we can separate the, the, the cause from the craft of the film. That's what we're talking about here, right? But let's talk about Sorry Missed You. Were you excited going into this film? What do you make of Ken Loach nowadays? Um, I mean, I, I did like I, Daniel Blake. I think this is very similar in the ground that he's treading. And I very much doubt that any of us disagree with Ken Loach and that the this um, gig economy and this mm-hmm. zero-hours economy is killing people mm-hmm. it, you know that is an irrefutable fact I absolutely yeah 100% I'm on board I you know I come from a working class family a working class area of Sheffield and yeah I know families like this who are living hand to mouth on next to nothing and my mum was stuck in the same minimum wage job for four years and she hated it and she was incredibly depressed and struggling to feed her family so I, I totally 100% not only sympathize you know I, I i've lived through this i understand but for me i personally do not think it is enough for a film to have to come from an important you know part of a society of our society I, especially not a fiction film i think if this was documentary which was you know going out and meeting these people and going to these companies who undoubtedly would not talk mm. um i think i'd probably be a lot more interested and a lot more forgiving because translating this into quote-unquote art for me means that 
Ken Loach is trying to do something beyond just point out what the plight is. He's, you know, th- and that's the thing a lot of people have said about this film. Oh, you know, why does art have to be pretty or poetic? Why can't it just be enough that it has, you know, a strong social message? But if you're going to make a film like this about this very, very real world issue, why, why make it a fiction, an art film, if if you don't, if you're not going to add anything else to it? I don't really understand kind of what the benefit is to Ken Loach to make a film. Because he's made documentaries before, has he not? I'm, he has. He made Spirit of 45 so, a few years ago about the, the welfare state. Yeah. So exactly. I just don't... I think it would be a more effective story if he you know, went went straight to the source rather than creating this fictionalised... It almost feels like a soap opera. It's so kind of laden with misery and laden with these very um, extreme characters. So you mm. have... They they almost seem like stereotypes. You have, you know, the caring wife who is literally a carer. It's what she does, she cares. That's what she actually says in the film. You have, you know, the hardworking, salt-of-the-earth dad. You have the really horrible, angry boss who I think is one of the film's high points. And it just, it seems to paint people with such broad strokes and... I think people are a lot more... I've said this before. I think I said this about Joker as well. I think people are a lot more nuanced and a lot more interesting than this film really wants them to be. Mm-hmm. I suppose that's a sticking point with some people is when critics ask for more nuance in their social realist films. They don't mean nuance <laughs> on the political points. They just exactly. mean nuance in the telling. Exactly, yeah. Nuance in the characters, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's not just about the character of Ricky, who's the protagonist. It's about everyone else in the film, how you know they're reduced to these to what they do and that for me is such a kind of reductive way of looking at the world I guess maybe Loach is making a comment here on you know how the gig economy forces you to just become another Mm. number on the system in someone's garage where they're delivering the parcels maybe maybe this is his intent but for me it's very hard to connect characters if there's all that I know about them is that they have a job and the job is very bad you know Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that this film needs to be, you know, some Terence Malick-esque sweeping portrait of the northern world. I'm just saying I'd like something with a little more kind of life to it. It feels really soulless. <laughs> right. And I suppose Ken, Ken Loach's status as pretty much our only polemicist of this sort of film, mm. who makes this sort of film, he's a lightning rod for these conversations. It feels like many other European filmmaking nations have a tradition where many directors work in this area where, yeah. where, whereas Ken Loach and Paul Laverty as screenwriter have a monopoly on northern misery. And we know why that is we know that it's because it is, if you're a working class filmmaker it's very hard to get a film made and particularly if you're a woman you don't, there are not a lot of working class women making films mm-hmm. and in the UK about the experience of being working class and I think really me not liking this film and thinking this film is quite clumsily constructed it's not a a diss against Ken Loach it's more of a diss that this is the best we've got like have we not got people out there who are wanting to make films and tell their stories who can do it with maybe a bit more you know a a sort of more interesting lens than Ken Loach who's Mm -hmm. been essentially come on he's been making the same film for quite a while now Mm -hmm. and I think with I Daniel Blake it works well and it kind of catalyzed a whole nation to be more open to these issues a because it had a really really great cast i think that everyone in that film was very very good 
which I don't think is necessarily the case in Sorry We Missed You. But B, I think maybe we were more optimistic as a nation at the time. <laughs> you think about all the time that's passed since, sorry, uh, since I Done Your Bike and how that all has changed. To me, there is a sense of Sorry We Missed You is the kind of film that politicians will watch middle class, upper middle class people will watch and go, mm, yes, this is very important, can't believe this happening, and then nothing will change. So, you know, I, it's all very well to make these films and to say, like, yeah, I'm raising awareness, but I'm like, well, what are you going to do with that awareness? So it, we need to actually change things. Mm-hmm. And I just don't, and I don't know if it's enough to have a message without anything kind of, you know, going back in. Like, I mean, is profits from this going to help people who are on these zero hours contracts? I just don't. <laughs> I sound like I'm on my soapbox next now, but I, I'm genuinely frustrated by the idea that we have this fiction film about a world and is it actually going to do anything to help these people mm. beyond making them quote-unquote seen? I fully believe that Ken Loach believes in the cause and will try, as he did with I, Daniel Blake, the release of this film, I'm sure there'll be some components of local grassroots activism. I hope so, so and I hope it's more successful than the I, Daniel Blake grassroots. But what strikes me now is for... Ken Loach and Paul Laverty, who've been collaborating on these films now for, oh gosh, 15, 20 years. I mean, mm. he, Ken Loach's been, since Ken Loach came back, roaring back in the late 80s with his period of films um, from Raining Stones onwards, and Paul Laverty, they've worked together from Looking for Eric onwards. Their tools are just blunted now. Mm. It, it's horrifying. There is, a, there is a compelling pull to the precarity of the, the zero hour contract, to the gig economy, that when you see it played out dramatically, is compelling and is quite terrifying more terrifying than anything we saw in Doctor Sleep <laughs> but there are a whole swathes of this script where it feels like Paul Laverty is copied and pasted from a commented free article on yeah. that topic You know what else I think is very interesting about this film and about the fact that it's set in uh, the northeast of England mm. there are not a lot of people of colour in this film and the people that are having to do these zero hours jobs, yeah there are a lot of you know, mm. uh, white you know, white working class men who have to do it, but there are a lot of um, people of colour, minorities who are having to take these jobs. It doesn't really represent the UK we live in. It's, you know, I think that it's a much more vibrant and diverse and interesting place Mm. than sorry we missed you once to make it look Anton what, what do you make of, of this film it, um, you know I heard our Marxist comedian Alexi Sale on the radio the other night doing some stand up <laughs> and in the middle of a joke he just launched into a disquisition about British imperial incursions into Iran in the 20th century and he talked very seriously about this for some time and then paused and said and when Corbyn becomes Prime Minister all stand up will be like this and uh, in a way That's what I think Sorry We Missed You is like. It's like that disquisition, but without the joke framing it. In that, it's just like Hannah says, Ken Loach has been in the news recently because he joined the kind of bandwagon of directors who've accused Marvel films of not being (laughs) cinema. Now, I don't really want to get into that debate, Mm. but if you're going to start talking about one film being cinema and another not, then it does raise the question, what is it about this that makes it cinema? Because it certainly contains a lot of information which it presents to us in a fairly didactic fashion, but it doesn't really... There just didn't seem to me to be a whole bunch of art to it. There's certainly no poetry. And it really is possible to tell stories like this with a great deal of poetry because Lynn Ramsey and Andrea Arnold do it really, really, really well. And I would much rather watch their films than this mm-hmm. film. I didn't, I must say, I didn't hate this film, but I just felt like it was blank and it was something I would have happily watched on TV while not paying much attention to it. And there's a scene where um, the main character's wife, Abby, the carer, walks past a street sign and 
if you look, you can see that the street sign reads Coronation Street. And to me, that absolutely sets the tone for the film. It feels like you're watching a soap opera. And the material that it's dealing with is so important that it deserves to be better presented so that more people will pay attention to it. Because I just found that it's kind of bludgeoning watching these films. And although I think entertainment is a a complex thing, it's not that um, any one film is straightforwardly fun and we all find entertainment where we want to find it. Um, There's just something about the way this, and I also think I, Daniel Blake, are framed, which makes them deeply unpalatable to watch. They just don't feel like real films. And um, so I think I think that was my main problem. However, there are there are some things I liked about it. The company for which Ricky Turner starts working as a, a, a non-contract deliverer is called Parcels Delivered Fast, I think. And you see the initials PDF. And in a sense, PDF is that that's an acronym that we're used to from another context. And what the film does is it shows the dehumanization of these workers where they're reduced to digital programs not unlike PDFs. It's clear that his employer, um, Maroney, who we heard in the clip, is he actually states he's all he cares about is the scanner that he hands to them, which contains a, which collects a whole bunch of digital data. He doesn't care about his employees as people. He cares about the little boxes that they tick on the information that's being collected on them by the scanner. And what we're really seeing is a, is a dehumanising process where all these workers are becoming part of a delivery machine. And what I think the film is trying to do, and actually doesn't do badly at all, is it's trying to rehumanise these characters mm-hmm. by showing them, not just showing Ricky at work, but then showing Ricky in the few hours he has when he's off work, because he works very long hours, at home and in his family life. And his family life, because partly because of his absence and his wife's absence, because of the pressures of their work, his family life becomes more and more fractured as the film goes on. And his son, who's rebellious and who we're at first uh, led to believe is going to be just a vandal and a hooligan, but we start realising actually is quite politicised and also has artistic aspirations and is actually quite good with his artistic aspirations. Seb, the son, starts rebelling and creating friction and gets thrown out of school and there's no one really at home to look after him and he's getting in trouble with the police. And all of this, you can see all of these different problems spiralling out of what really is the one problem, which is the problem of employment and work and work hours and the amount that the workers are being paid. And I did like the performances. I liked actually the performances of all four of the family members. I thought the daughter, Lisa, who's played by, let me make sure I get this name correct, it's... Katie Proctor, yeah. I thought was really very good. And I've not seen, I don't believe I've seen her in anything before. Well, Ken Loach um, tends to cast non-professionals. Yeah. yeah, There just is something missing from this film. I guess in a way, the title, Sorry We Missed You, talks about that. It is about an essentially an absent father, but there's also an absent film. Just, mm. I just wish there were more to it than what there is, because what we have is a bunch of data, but we don't have some kind of artistic program that connects all those points of data together, and that's what I really want from a film. Yeah. Yeah. Hannah, what scores would you give? Sorry we missed you. Um, I feel like I've been a real downer this week. Again, I think it's probably a 3-2-2. A two, two. I, I, actually, I think I appreciate more having heard Anton speak so mm. eloquently on it. I think maybe I am a bit harsh an old Ken Loach. I don't know. He doesn't. He doesn't need me to defend him. He's got plenty of people who are very, very willing to go to bat for him. And I do agree that I think it's a very important issue. And I do hope that a film can have the power to influence people who have the power to change. But at the same time, if we're to believe that every person who has the power to change things is like Maloney and mm. and is 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 a nasty bastard, they're not gonna 
they're not going to be touched by a film like this. They're not going to see it and think that they are part of the problem. Hmm. So, yeah, I'm just an old cynic. <laughs> Anton? Probably uh, 333, I would say. Yeah. And I agree with you, Hannah, it's 322. But let us know what you make of Sorry Missed You or Doctor Sleep if you go and see them this weekend at the usual channels at Truth and Movies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email. And of course, there's the comments page at lwlies.com slash podcast. Up next, though, we have Film Club, which is another related sequel, Psycho 2. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Released and set over 20 years after Alfred Hitchcock's classic proto-slasher Psycho, this sequel sees Norman Bates, after years of treatment in a mental institution for the criminally insane, come home to run the Bates Motel. Also returning as Vera Miles, as the woman who is still haunted by her sister's brutal murder and the ominous motel where it all occurred many years ago. On the basis of the staff report, Norman Bates is judged, restored to sanity, and is ordered released forthwith. What about his victims? Don't they have any say? Can you restore them? Madam, please sit down. This matter is being represented by the district attorney. Your Honor, my name is Mrs. Lila Loomis. I have a petition here signed by 743 people against Norman Bates' release, including the relatives of the seven people he murdered. Doesn't that give me the right to speak out? Has the district attorney advised Mrs. Loomis about her rights in this matter? Yes, Your Honor. I explained that her petition had no effect on these proceedings. Have you explained to her that this hearing is Why a matter of law and not a motion? Don't you realize yes, they're going to release a homicide Mrs. Loomis, I'm going to ask you to sit down or I'll have the bailiff remove you from this courtroom. If you have any further questions, please discuss them with the district attorney after this hearing. Why bother? It's all too obvious. Our courts protect the criminals, not their victims. Yes, that's a clip from Psycho 2 there. Vera Miles reprising her role as Lila Loomis. Let's see some comments from listeners. We have the Futurist saying he recalled going to see it with much trepidation but was greatly surprised and spellbound by the twists and take on the happenings after the classic. The ending was highly satisfying. Director Franklin was a Hitchcock fan and he did the master proud. Abner Pestol says, brilliant film, one of my favourite sequels. And Pardeep Sohota agrees, one of the great sequels. 
Stuart Hoskin said, unfortunately, he managed to somehow see Psycho 2 before the original, so the twist <laughs> was completely spoilt for him. I guess the, both twists, really, the fact that the murder in the shower and also the identity of mother. Yevgeny uh, Karavansky says, surprisingly good, Vera Miles even better in the first, this, this one than the first one. And David Hughes says, it's about as perfect as a belated sequel can be, and Psycho 3 is not too bad either. I haven't seen Psycho 3. That's one that Perkins directed himself. We talk about belated sequels. How's this for a bit of a mind-melting thing? So this this film came out 22, 23 years after mm-hmm. Psycho. Doctor Sleep comes out nearly 40 years after The Shining. It, and it just feels like the gap between the 80s and now feels like nothing, but the gap between the 60s and the 80s feels huge, doesn't it? It really does. So Anton... Going from Psycho to Psycho 2, was this a first watch for you? Had you seen this one before? Or I you know the reputation, saw this, but I saw it only recently. I saw it about two years ago mm-hmm. or a year ago. Um, and I, I mean, I, I must say, I also love this. I've been debating whether I'm going to commit an act of absolute sacrilege on air or not, but I am. <laughs> Although the original, uh, Hitchcock's Psycho, which came out in 1960, is revered, and I think rightly revered as one of the most influential horror films ever made, if it's a horror film, the most influ- influential murder films, I don't actually rate the film from the point at which the car is sunk in the bog. Mm -hmm. I think from that moment, the film falls apart that almost all that anyone ever remembers about the film is the scenes leading up to that. And I think leading up to that moment, which is about half the film, it is perfect. It's absolutely perfect. And at that point, it kind of falls apart and the film Mm -hmm. doesn't really have any point and doesn't know what to do with its characters anymore and loses quite a lot of its tension, which the tension is built so carefully to that moment. This film doesn't have any flab like that. Um, (laughs) This film really, really is wound very, very, very tight. And a little bit like Dr. Sleep, it's um, fully aware of the reputation that the original has and it keeps returning to it while trying to break free from it. All of this is instantiated, actually, in the character of Norman Bates. Norman Bates is now reformed. He's been released from a psychiatric institution. And we get the impression that he really does want to be a new, better person. He's modernising, which is what a sequel should do. Mm -hmm. But he keeps getting drawn back to his old ways. And there's um, all the changes here are rung. Um, The film opens actually with the notorious shower scene from the original film, which is in black and white, and then shifts very quickly to colour so that we can see that's one change. There's a scene where we see Norman Bates walking into a diner where some characters playing arcade games, which of course wouldn't have existed in the (laughs) 60s, and he looks so out of place next to them because he, of course, has aged since Mm -hmm. and has been in prison since the 60s. And... Although the flushing toilet that was glimpsed in the original Psycho was, uh, you know, that had never been seen before on screen, now we get a toilet that literally regurgitates blood all over the floor. It's much more extreme. And um, although the famous shower scene never actually features any nudity Mm -hmm. in the original film, here we have a quite contrived shower sequence in which there's full-on 80s TNA. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really do think what that's doing is showing just how times have changed because that is one of the main themes of the film and of course um, the genre that Psycho influenced more than any other is the slasher genre and it's in the 80s that the slasher genre came into its fore like really 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 became the the thing that was in every cinema that you Mm -hmm. went to and so it's strange to see this old hand return in the 80s the era of the slasher and find his way through a world in which he's not quite familiar and find that actually it's very difficult to escape from the burden of the past that he has and it is such a twisty film. And the twists really are unguessable and clever. <laughs> yes. um, 
I think it has so much fun as well with that. I, I love when there's, there's, there's a scene quite early in the film where he's he, he, he has Meg Tully's character round and she's handing him the <laughs> the butcher's knife, saying, "Why don't you take this knife?" And we know that this is referencing some of the brutal murders in the first film, but the, of course the dramatic irony that she doesn't know and you don't want to give this character a knife because we know the legacy that you're playing on there. And that's a very it's a very weird dynamic because he's conflicted. Mm-hmm. We know that there's a kind of double aspect to him. There's the nice guy that we see, but we know what he's capable of because of the first film. And as viewers, we're also conflicted because we want him to recover. Mm-hmm. We want him to get better, but we also want to watch a psycho film in which lots of people are slashed in front of our eyes. Mm-hmm. And he manages to get to the heart of something that's quite appealing about Anthony Perkins' performance because he was so boyish in Psycho, so innocent. And in this one, now he's older, he has a bit of uh, Jimmy Stewart sort of uh, golly gosh sort of uh, aspect to him. So we want him to get better. But of course, now if we're viewing it through the eyes of an 80s slasher crowd, we want those gruesome deaths, don't we? And he's very, um, his crooked smile is incredible. You can, it's a very, very difficult smile to read. And he's so melancholic in this. It's um, like, because he is, he is really an, an old man who's just emerged in a world that he doesn't understand anymore. <laughs> Hannah, did you love it? Yeah, I did. I, I, I think this is what I want a Doctor Sleep to be. Uh-huh. I think it's a great film about trauma and about madness and about gaslighting. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of a, a rare, woman on man gaslighting. A rare male yeah. gaslighting yeah. film, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I actually really liked it. I think the big, the big kind of twist is, is a lot of fun. And it's a good small town movie, you know. You get to see Norman Bates just like trying to... Trying to be a fry cook, trying to run a motel, you know. I think it's to say I'd never heard of this film until about a week ago, which probably outs me as a terrible film critic. And I think anyone who didn't know about this would be kind of sceptical, like, Psycho 2, really? Did anyone want that? And the answer is yes, yes, it's very good. I think it's the rare instance of making a sequel that doesn't try at all to be the new Psycho. It just kind of does its own thing. It's not like a straight-up horror film. It's not, you know... It's just building on kind of the mythology that was created and also treating that as a mythology and kind of, you know, exploring the psychology of Norman Bates. Mm-hmm. And I think that Anthony Perkins, obviously, you know, we've, we've Anton and we've already discussed it. He is amazing in this. And I think that Vera Miles and Meg Tilly are great as well. I think it is just a really, a really enjoyable, fairly short movie. I think it's one hour fifty. I think it's even shorter than that, maybe one hour forty. Yeah. Is it shorter it, than the original cycle? It flew by, mm-hmm. I have to say. Yeah. Still ten minutes too long. Still though. too <laughs> still, still ten minutes too long. But I do think the end of it is very good as well. The, the oh, kind the, of the, last half hour the, is the final twenty odd minutes where really I, I had seen a couple of the deaths from this film excerpted in GIF form. <laughs> particularly the final the you know, way where he finally kills mother. And they're they're such satisfying, gifable moments, but when if you're waiting for those to come up, you'll be waiting a long time. Oh, yeah. It really goes well, off the so hook much at the of end. It is about you know this 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 man who is very disturbed, trying to kind of reconcile his past and trying to move forward. And I don't want to get all like social commentary on Psycho too, but <laughs> you know ref- criminal reform's a really hard thing. You know if you've been in the system for twenty years, how do you come out and live a normal life? Stephen King explores that in Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> it all comes back to Stephen King. But I actually, yeah, I would highly recommend that anyone who isn't familiar with this goes and checks it out. We had so many comments about mm-hmm. how great this film was, which really 
I think the most comments for any film we've done on Film Club. People love Psycho too. And the real tragedy of the film is that when he comes out at the beginning, when he's released, he really genuinely is reformed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's all these other people that keep <laughs> imposing his past back on him They're that all, create yeah. the problem. Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah, they, they can't just let him you know try again not, not not that i'm saying that someone who murders three women should should necessarily be given a second chance but i think it does a really good job of exploring his trauma and the shadow of, of mrs bates kind of looms so large in this film and he's trying to get away from it bless him and just can't everyone wants to talk to him about his bloody mother mm-hmm. must be exhausting being Norman Bates <laughs> and it just has that that delicious as you, as you mentioned earlier and on that delicious metatextual level where we'll always be remaking these stories we'll be mm. and this was literally them pulling Anthony Perkins out of the cupboard wherever he was and saying <laughs> please just be Norman Bates again and he's like do you want me to so just do the same thing it. again maybe I want to go and do other other roles and other projects but no as we've just done with Doctor Sleep as we'll keep doing with these films I should just add though that originally it was going to be Christopher Walken this was going to be a straight to a straight to DVD film and Perkins read the script and said I am in this and that's what raised the film's profile I mean I think he does do this perfect job of like still having that kind of there's something slightly off about him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and that's what keeps you guessing because you're like, oh no, he, he actually is like a psychopath who has just kind of been feigning this I'm a doddery old man thing now. Uh, especially in the beginning. I think, you, you know, when you're first introduced to uh, Lila Loomis, there is this sense of like, oh no. <laughs> um, and indeed later there's a sense of, oh no. <laughs> but um, I, do, I do think it's, it's not just a, a curio. I think it's a real... A real little, a little treat. A strong recommendation from the desk for. Uh, it's not often on film club we actually get to recommend the film we're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's Psycho Two. Go and watch it. Let us know what you think. And if you're going to dig deeper into Psycho Three and Four and the remake and Bates Motel, let us know how that journey goes. <laughs> I actually, I recently purchased a T-shirt from H&M of the uh, the Vince Vaughn Psycho. Uh, poster and I don't know why they were selling that like who asked who asked for a Gus Van Sant psycho t-shirt I think there may have been a confusion like in the office mm-hmm. I'm very glad to have it I mean I think that that <laughs> film is again utterly pointless but you know a, a great kind of like well okay it's Halloween that's going to have to be another film club <laughs> maybe for the next Stephen King film we can, we can keep the psycho Stephen King double bill going we'll get through all of them eventually and Anton will wheel you out for that. <laughs> Like Anthony Perkins. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> anyway, Anton, Hannah, thank you so much for joining me this week. Next week we have The Irishman, Martin Scorsese's three and a half hour long epic. Is that how long it is, Hannah? It is, yeah. But the quickest, I hope everyone keeps saying this, but it is the quickest three and a half hours you'll ever spend. Just rattles cinema. by like a theme park ride. It does, yeah. Yeah, Scorsese <laughs> would be so happy with that. And then we have Driven. Driven. Do you know <laughs> you about don't sure. It's about the man who invented the DeLorean. Yes, it's one of the two John DeLorean films out yes, this year. This, this is, is the one with... Without Alec Baldwin. Yes. This is um, Jason Sudeikis and Lee Pace. Lee two Pace. Of, two of Hannah's boys. Oh, really? So Hannah's boys as opposed to Hannah's men. <laughs> we don't yeah, need to, we don't we need to don't discuss need to, this on there. We don't need to uh, categorise. One of Hannah's... <laughs> One of Hannah's boys, indeed. And Film Club, because we're talking about Martin Scorsese, we're going to go back to the late 90s for one of, I think, his underrated gems, Bringing Out the Dead, starring Nicolas Cage. A great film, I think. All-time Nicolas Cage performance in that. A brilliant one, yes. Let us know what you think of those films at the usual channels. Once more, Hannah Anton, thank you for joining me this week. I'm Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.